Uh, hey, I am glad to be here today. As Eric said, my name's Mark, and man, I've got one of the best jobs in the world. Uh, I cannot believe Bethel has put up for me uh, for these so many years, uh, whatever it is now, 17, 18, Jana probably knows. Um, man, I came a long time ago, uh, had a lot more hair, a lot less gray hair, didn't need readers, uh, things happened. had one child at the time, she just started kindergarten, uh, she's now married, uh, then we have two others that are about to be junior high and the first year of high school. So we're getting close to being done. Uh, we can almost see the end of the tunnel. Uh, but I do, my job is so great because I get to work a lot in the background, which I love. Uh, but I get to spend so much time with all the other campus pastors and their staff. Uh, and I really love getting to do that. Um, you know, each campus, I get to make the rounds and going to them. And man, we're all united where it really matters, and then we're all different depending on our context. In fact, uh, downtown's probably the only church you could come to in Tyler. I know it's safe. Maybe in the state of Texas, maybe in the U.S., where you get led in worship by a guy that can play guitar backwards and upside down. Uh, if you've never noticed that about Matthew, now you'll never unsee it. It blew my mind the first time I saw that. Uh, but man, I'm so excited about the building uh, that we've been able to open up that God's provided I know working with Eric and uh, Mike and Ashley, uh, they've probably spent countless hours in their entire teams. Uh, so, man, I am so thankful for the staff here, the leaders here. Uh, in fact, this past spring, I got to spend some time with guys considering to be elders and deacons. And next week, members are going to have an opportunity to give their affirmation to those guys. So I hope you're here uh, to be able to do that, uh, getting to reconnect with some guys uh, that I've known for years, uh, Doug McSwain stepping in to be an elder again, uh, guys like Joe Carlisle stepping in to be a deacon, uh, then a lot of new guys that I got to meet, Lee and Andrew, and uh, uh, just great uh, getting to hang out and spend time with our leadership, and I love that about what I get to do. I get excited about waking up and going uh, to work each and every day, so thank you for Bethel for this opportunity to now open God's Word together, I want to invite you to Psalm chapter 3. It's only eight verses. As you're doing that, I want you to be thinking about what is the biggest problem or frustration, difficult situation maybe you've had in the last week. What is the difficult situation? Maybe it was at home. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it's a financial struggle. Take your biggest problem and just kind of put it in the background for just a moment. Because no matter what stage of life we are in, no matter who we are, man, we all deal with problems. We all have frustrations. We all have struggles. We have trouble that we deal with. Uh, if you're like me, you always handle each situation with such perfection and grace. Uh, at least I know I do. Uh, doesn't seem to take much to get me frustrated. In fact, the other day, I'd been out in the yard, probably mowing, came in, uh, sat down in my chair, and man, there was a... a a pillow and a blanket. Man, I sit down. Whatever. Can't even sit down in this house. Look over, and my wife gives me that godly eye roll. You know, leave him alone, kids. But something as simple as that blanket being in my way just frustrated me. Then don't we really have problems? We can really have some struggles. What would we even do if our lives began to fall apart? Maybe you're in that situation right now where things really seem to be unraveling. Well, I believe in all these situations God has given us 
Psalm 3. Because we all have struggles. We all have trouble. In fact, so I did some research. I found a guy named uh, Dave Snowden that said, man, there's four types of problems that you can fit every situation you have into. He said they're simple, complex, complicated, and chaotic. Now, the blanket I would put in the chaotic, he would probably put in the simple, things like that. Or one guy named Wayne Purnell, he said, he wrote a book about this and made some money. He said there's three types. There's past, present, and future. I mean, what a genius there. Thank you, Wayne. But everyone has troubles. So let's read this, and then I want to walk down through this passage together. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let those of the Lord hear this morning. So imagine you woke up and all of a sudden everything began to unravel. The people you trusted in betrayed you. A child that you raised turns against you. You're forced out of your home. And most importantly, everything that you believed about God was now being questioned and doubted. When our lives fall apart, I believe God gives us Psalm 3. And I can't express over the last several weeks how God has spoken to me through this. And as I begin studying, I, I like to break things down into kind of manageable pieces. And so what I've done, I have channeled my inner Baptist for what I'm about to show you. In fact... It's about to make Eric so excited because there are going to be four phrases or four uh, phases that we're going to see David walk through. And here's what they are. You're going to see him in trouble. You're going to see him use truth. You're going to see him trust. And you're going to see him ask for triumph. Now, I know that elates Eric. He loves that. But simply to remember, we're going to see trouble. We're going to see truth. We're going to see trust. And then we're going to see triumph. And at the end of it, I hope we walk away believing this. That God is not stingy with his peace. That that's what this passage said to me. That God is not stingy with his peace. So let's see the trouble beginning in verses 1 and 2. And if you'll notice in your Bibles, it begins with a caption or a title. And it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So here's some important facts uh, about the Psalms, especially this one. The first one is this, that this title of this Psalm is actually appears in the original Hebrew Bible. The second thing is there's only 14 Psalms that are tied to historical events or episodes. And this is the first one, and they all have to do in the life of David third important thing is this is a lament psalm. You're going to see David crying out to God 
because of his trouble. So here's what is going on in the background. If you were to turn and read 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 18, that's the backdrop for this psalm. So let me give it to you in a nutshell. So David is king. He's ruling from Jerusalem, the holy city, where the tabernacle is, the Ark of the Covenant, where the sacrifices were being made. He went from being that young shepherd boy to killing bears and lions and then Goliath, and he has been anointed king over all of Israel. So David, David is living the good life, but he's constantly going to war as kings would often do in that day. But there comes a day where David doesn't go to war. Hanging out on his terrace, and what happens? There's a young woman that catches his eye. He ends up committing adultery and then having her husband murdered. But then God forgives his sins, but God made David a promise. He said, the sword will not depart from your hand and the rest of your house for all of your life. And that's exactly what happens, that David is constantly having war and in conflict until he dies. And that's exactly what is happening. So the important thing to remember is that God not only proclaimed this, not only knew this, but he is allowing every difficult problem, every difficult person, every situation to happen. That nothing that comes into David's life doesn't first pass through God's will for him. Well, then there comes Absalom. Absalom is David's son, and Absalom had a sister who was violated by one of her brothers, a son from another mother with David. So what does Absalom do? He kills that brother, and he flees. Years later, he's allowed to return, but for two years, his dad, the king, will not see him or talk to him. So what does this do? This frustrates Absalom. This insults him. This angers him. So he begins gathering people. And the scriptures tells us that he begins winning their hearts. He then establishes a regime to come against King David, not only to dethrone him, his father, but to actually kill him. So Absalom and his army, they come to Jerusalem. And when you read the picture of David, who was king over all of Israel, ruling from the holy city, 2 Samuel 15, 30 tells us what happens. But David went up to ascent the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And what a scene of despair from going from ruling as king to now being ran out of the city, barefooted, head covered, and he's weeping. Now, I think I have problems, but nothing compares to that. And notice how David describes his troubles in verses 1 and 2. These attacks are coming from two different areas. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. So Absalom, he's gaining more and more followers, more and more people. His army is growing, and they join together to go and kill David. So the first attack is actually on his life. They're coming after his body. They want to end his life. And he says, many are my foes. And he is exactly correct. But there's another attack in verse 2. He says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. So not only is the attack coming on his life, it's coming from somewhere else. 
David is king, but this is a reference to his predecessor, Saul. Remember, Saul was reigning king, made many bad choices, many sins. And the scriptures tells us that God removed himself. He withdrew from Saul. Well, David, here he is, king, also committing many sins. Probably many knew about them. And they are trying to get David to believe that God is also withdrawing from him. So not only is it an attack on his body, it's a psychological attack, and it's a spiritual one. They are trying to get David to question God's calling, his favor, and his goodness. They're trying to get David to question if God is actually for him and with him. It's an attack on his faith. That everything he believed about God is now being attacked. So I don't know about you, but when I go through difficult situations, when I go through trials and I go through struggles or dealing with difficult people, usually Eric Barton, um, I feel that. Man, it doesn't take much, and it can begin to get me to question God's calling on my life. And am I supposed to be doing this? Is all this even worth it in questioning? Man, is God really for me? Because in those situations, it feels like he is actually withdrawing. But when you think about the context of this psalm, David is being very honest. And there's absolutely no limit to his misery. I mean, people were abandoning him. He got ran out from his home. The holy city where he sat and ruled on the throne, where the ark was, where the holy city, leaving all that behind him, and he's now fearing for his life. He had to be tempted to believe, you know what, they're right. God is absolutely abandoning me. And here's the truth. God had every reason to do exactly that. He had every reason to withdraw from David, to pull back and to leave him to his own vices. God had plenty of reasons. But notice what David does. He moves from trouble to truth in verse 3. What does he do? He says, but you, O Lord, or a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. So David uses truth. He is going to overwhelm those voices of doubt. He is going to overwhelm his fears with truth. And David's going to focus on three things of truth. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He is saying, God, you are my only and my true source of protection. Now, it probably didn't feel like that, but he's choosing to say this as truth. And notice he uses this image of a shield. Now, often we think of the little shield you would wear on your arm, you would use it to block some sword, and then you would strike with the other one. But this isn't the picture that David is giving us here. Notice he says, you are a shield about, or your Bibles will say, around me. This was a different type of shield. This was a large shield, usually as big as a door, that would almost begin to encompass you. This shield was used not to fight in the battle, but to follow your commander as you begin to overtake a city. You would stand with your brothers in arm, and you would use a shield to walk closer and closer to the city as you followed your commander. So I believe the picture is this. He's saying, God... No matter my circumstances, you are my true source of protection. And I will continue to follow you forward. 
that David is choosing to move forward in obedience because God is his protection. He's not going to allow his fears to control his actions. He wants to move forward in obedience. But the other truth, he says, is you are my glory. Now, why would David have to say this? Why would he have to make the statement, God, you are my glory? Because there was a time where that wasn't true. That David was seeking all other things. But he has come to the realization that he was seeking his own glory. And so he states, God, you are my glory. The third truth, he says, is that, God, you are the lifter of my head. I mean, this is a powerful word picture. Because I know for me, when I'm in trouble, especially by my own doing, my mom always told me the things you get in trouble always usually start as fun. And I found that to be true. But what do we do when we, especially when we are the ones that have caused this trouble to come upon us, we have that downward look. And he says, God, you are the lifter of my head. I remember one day I got to see this. Uh, years ago, uh, my son, who's now 14, was about 8 years old, 9 years old, and into baseball. So I volunteered and coached, me and a friend. And I remember on that team, we had a little boy named Thomas, probably my favorite kid to ever coach. He had very little baseball ability, but he always had the greatest attitude. He hardly ever spoke, but no matter what you told him to do, he would do it with all of his gusto. Well, Thomas, not having much athletic ability, we gave him a lot of time and instruction. And every time he'd get into that batter's box, then he'd leave head down. Every time. I mean, I, thought, I even prayed, God, help this little boy get a hit one day. So one day he's in that batter's box, and here comes the ball. And little Thomas finally makes contact. And what we'd always told the kids, no matter what happens, you hit that ball, you don't watch the ball, you run to first base, but don't stop. You run through that bag to make sure you're there. We'll let you know whether you go or you stay, but you run through that bag. And little Thomas hit that ball, and guess what it did? It rolled right down the first baseline. First baseman simply put it up, stepped on the bag. But little Thomas did everything we told him to do. He ran straight through that bag, turned to the dugout, head down. My, other, my friend there, the other coach, went over to Thomas, and he took his chin. He said, look at me. Look at me, Thomas. He said, you realize that's the first time that you've ever made contact with the ball? And you did exactly what we had asked you. You ran through the bag like everyone else should, but you did it. And all of a sudden, his total demeanor changed. Next game, after much praying, Thomas finally got that first hit. And the stands went wild for little Thomas. So he's saying, God, you are the lifter of my head. And the troubles come even at my own doing that you are my glory and you are the lifter of my head. So what does he do? He, he starts in this trouble. We've all experienced things. But then he moves with truth. And when you do that, it moves him to trust. Look at verse 4. He says, I cried aloud, meaning out loud, he spoke of his frustrations to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. So David is honest with God. He doesn't give us everything he said, but he cried out loud to the Lord. 
So what do we see him doing? We see him being very honest. In fact, he doesn't stuff his fear. He doesn't ignore his emotions. What does he do? He prays them. He prays his fear. He prays his misery. He prays those emotions out loud to God. And what does God do? He answered him. But you know what it doesn't tell us? It doesn't tell us what God said. But it shows us something else. Think of all the voices David could have been listening to. The people with him. The people chasing him. The people yelling at him as he's leaving the city. Head down in misery. People are yelling at him. Even the voices in his own head. And I have to believe, being human, he was still fighting that inner battle. Maybe they are right. Maybe they, God has abandoned me. Maybe I'm really not cut out for this. Maybe this isn't worth it. But David chooses to listen to the voice of God. And this moves David to trust even more and more. And I believe David is coming to this place that he is believing, no matter what is going on in my life, even at my own doing, God is not stingy with his peace. That God is not stingy with his peace, even if I'm the one that is causing this. Because look at what David does in verse 5. Remember, he's being ran out of the city. He's being chased out. An army is coming after him. And he says, I laid down and I slept. Now, that's not a very good strategy if you are running for your life. But he lays down And he sleeps. And what happens? He says, I woke up again. It's this picture of total trust. And why? For the Lord sustained me. He then proclaims and speaks his trust to God. So he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people. And that's not an exaggeration. Who have set themselves against me all around. But here's the question I keep asking. Man, that sounds great, but how? I mean, his current circumstances in no way support his confidence. Because he starts in trouble, but he moves to truth, and he fights those doubts and fears and frustrations and emotions with truth. So it moves him to trust. In fact, you can't get from trouble to trust without truth. But it gets even bolder. In verse 7 and 8, we're going to see him actually move and ask for triumph. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. And I understand that prayer. Yes, God, save me from these troubles. Save me from this situation. I get that. But then he says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now, it's not a phrase we often use, especially in our troubles, but a couple of things to notice. Notice the tense he is writing this in. It's as if it had already happened. He's left Jerusalem, the holy city. He's gone up to the Mount of Olives, probably right across the Jordan River. This hasn't happened yet. But he's believing, God, you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break their teeth. How can he say that? 
It's because I believe David is now in the place that he knows he has no confidence in himself at all. He's realizing he is absolutely powerless. It's in this moment David's faith is not in himself. God will strike my enemies. God will break their teeth. Salvation comes only from him. There's two things to note here. One, David is looking to the one who is above all of his circumstances. That everything that David is going through, he's now looking to the one that sets above all of them. What a good reminder for us. But there's a second thing. Notice what David is asking for. He's not asking for just deliverance. He is asking for absolute victory. He's not wanting just to survive this, but to triumph over all of his fears and his misery. The truth is, David has absolutely no grounds to ask this of God. There isn't enough goodness in David to ever deserve for God to save him. But David believes God isn't stingy with his peace. That even in this situation, even in this trouble, even if he brought it upon himself, God is not stingy with his peace. So what I want to do, I want to share with you some things I saw from this that I've been trying to use. And there are many. You could take this and you could study and you could pull some great application out for yourself. But I wrote down four words that I have put on a note card and I've got it in my truck that I'm trying to remind myself from this passage. So whether it's the frustration of a blanket in a chair that won't let me sit down Maybe a financial struggle when marriage gets hard, parenting is difficult. Even in the church, things can be hard. The first thing I wrote down is one word, it's Selah. If you'll notice, three different times in verses 2, 4, and 8, David says Selah, because this was a song, and this is a term that simply means pause. So when that next trouble or that situation or that blanket shows back up in my chair, to remind myself to take a breath, to just pause for a moment. And here's the second one. I wrote the word follow. David said, God, you are a shield around or about me. That word pictures that shield you would use to follow your commander into battle. That even through troubles, even through trials, even through difficulties, obedience is important. That obedience is vital, but especially during struggles. That disobedience is only going to make things worse. So when I feel that struggle coming, when I feel that frustration building, trying to remind myself, okay, the next thing to do is the next right decision. The next decision, make the right one. Because troubles followed by obedience, that is where God loves to show up and show out. That even in struggles, even through difficulties, obedience is important. The third word I wrote was the word check. To check my glory. David said, Oh, Lord, you are my glory. That means weight 
importance, significance. In fact, everything that David had built his glory on was taken from him. Popular king, not anymore. Good father, well, that illusion is way gone. Moral character, well, we could add adultery, murder, lying to the list. What about power? Not anymore. All the good things he had built his security on had been stripped away. So when that struggle comes and that difficult comes, it's an opportunity that I need to stop, take a breath. I need to remember my obedience, make the next right decision. But then it's an opportunity to check my glory. Am I giving weight to something and now it's being threatened? Maybe that's why I'm so frustrated. Maybe that's why this situation is so difficult. Because if I can reorient my glory, perhaps it'll make that trouble or that frustration even less. That even through my, my struggles and even through my, my difficulties, it's an opportunity for me to be transformed into his image by checking my glory. The fourth one was this. So I said, say law. I said, I need to follow. I need to check. And then I wrote the word focus. Focus on the hill. I mean, David cried out and God answered him from his holy hill. Where's David? David's on the other side of the Jordan. But he can look back and from there you can see the holy city. Where the tabernacle was, where the ark was, where the sacrifices were made. This is where God's presence was seen. This is where his favor was seen. This is where you experience God's peace. But isn't focus really hard when things are difficult? At least it is for me. It's hard for me to remain that right perspective, especially when things are hard. But it's important to remember that in every difficult situation or circumstance or dealing with difficult situations or people, it always has a spiritual component. That difficult times, troubles, trials, I can be tempted to question God's favor and is he for me, even his presence. So what do I mean by that? Because today, the tabernacle's gone, the ark is gone. Man, you can look around, it sure seems like God could easily have abandoned his people. So what we do, we focus on another hill. Because just outside that city sits another hill where trouble was on full display. In fact, the greatest trouble the world has ever known. That how in the world was God going to deal with sinful people that allowed sin and death to be their only future? How was God going to make peace where there was absolutely none? And so I need to look to that hill, that, that hill called Golgotha, hill of the skull. That all of the Christian life should be growing in a greater understanding and in a greater awe of the miracle that happened to us there. And I have to remind myself to keep the right perspective that if God would go to those lengths to not only save me, but to bring me peace where there was no peace, man, that can build a confidence in the here and now of no matter what I'm going through. 
that God was not stingy with his peace then. He will not be stingy with his peace now. So church, pray with me. God, you are the giver of all good things. That you are the same yesterday, today, and will be tomorrow. That all things that would happen to David and happen to us must first pass through your perfect and loving will. So Lord, would you remind us that maybe there's a difficult situation coming just as the sun rises tomorrow. Maybe we're sitting in one now that we need to trust and obey. That you are not stingy with your peace. That we could do as David, we could be in the midst of that that trouble, that difficult situation, or whatever it might be, and that we would fight all of those voices and doubts with truth. That you could then move us to trust in a way that maybe we never have before. And that we would be able to ask, not because we are deserving, but that you would bring triumph over all of our fears, over all of our misery, over all of our troubles. And that we could fully rest assured that, God, you are not stingy with your peace. Lord, I ask all this in the precious name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.